0: Okie dokie. Let's get started. Welcome this evening. Welcome, Michelle and Ellie. We're Ellie, back to class. What are we calling you Ellie this time around. Does anybody know what we're calling you this time around? So far, after Ellie, a lot more than Hannah. Okay. All right. Well, Hannah, welcome oh, I'm back. Sorry, change that since <laughs> I knew you as Hannah before I knew you as All right. So tonight, uh, picking up in our look at the life of Jesus. And we're going to talk tonight about the story of John the Baptist. And um, a couple of introductory thoughts. Who are the prophets? So our picture of a prophet, I think, is that, uh, is that of someone who uh, is maybe this rugged, loner, um stand-alone against the face of you know, evil speak the truth against you know when everybody else is kind of going the wrong direction. The one that calls the community uh, back to God. Those are that's kind of our archetypal picture of a prophet, and we think of people like John the Baptist and Elijah and Moses, who uh, as being kind of the the uh, the real prophets of their day. And there was more than them, of course, but those are the the rugged loners who bore the weight of the world on their shoulders. That's generally what we think of when we think of a prophet, and John the Baptist was obviously no exception to that. There's one thing that all three of these men, Elijah, Moses, and John the Baptist, had in common. And that is that they all got depressed, discouraged, and lonely. Their life was not wonderful simply because of the calling that God had placed on it. It was hard. And it was often unfruitful. If you look throughout the Old Testament, which is where we get the stories of our prophets many of them did not see much fruit for their labor most of them were called at a time when whoever it was Israel or Judah or whatever people they were called to serve were going in the wrong direction and the prophets were called by God to speak the truth and to call the community back to what God had intended for them and most of the time it didn't work you have men like Jeremiah, for example, who uh, is prophesying in Judah right, at the, right up to the time that Judah was destroyed for the last time by the Babylonians, and he got thrown in prison. And then they pull him back out of prison and say, uh, Jeremiah, we have, you know, we'd like to know what we should do. We promise we'll listen to you. And when Jeremiah tells them what to do, they actually don't listen to him and throw him back in prison and go and do the opposite of what he is said to do. Some died in prison, like John the Baptist. Others were tortured or cut in half, like Isaiah. These are not men that had easy lives. We talked about John the Baptist recently in class. This was back during uh, the last set of classes that I did. And uh, how that he died, I should say this. We talked recently about John the Baptist and how he struggled to reconcile who he thought the Messiah was going to be with the Messiah that he got. And we want to get there again tonight towards the end of class and talk about that a little bit. And how that he died having prepared the way for a Messiah that did not live up to his expectations. First, I want to take a look at the man we remember as John the Baptist. So the earliest story that we read of John is in the announcement of his birth in Luke chapter 1. This is what the angel says to his father Zacharias. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard And thy wife, Elizabeth, shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. So this is a similar beginning to another one of the prophets in the book of Judges named Samson. When the angel came to his uh, mother, and, or the woman who was going to be his mother and said, you're going to bear a son and he's going to be a Nazarite. Now, what it meant to be a Nazarite was uh, no haircuts ever, anywhere. So by the time John was around 30 years old or so, when he uh, came preaching in the, by the Jordan River, you were looking at a man who never had a haircut. Probably, a, I don't know what he looked like. I guess we won't surmise. Um, Being a Nazarite meant that he did not drink alcohol, it meant that he was single, and it meant that he lived a very simple life. The Bible tells us that John, for example, ate locusts and wild honey, and that was his diet. Rough clothes, someone who is completely dedicated to God, often when they were Nazarites, they would only be a Nazarite for a time, and they would take a vow and do that for a year or something like that and then come back to the temple. A man like John, that was his lifestyle from the time he was born, as far as we know, until the time that he died. And then the angel Gabriel goes on, in Luke chapter 1, to reference a prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. Or if you look in your Bibles, it's Malachi chapter 4. The uh, Hebrew Bible does not have a chapter break there. This is a prophecy that's mentioned. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, the complete Jewish Bible ends that with complete destruction. And if you look in the uh, Hebrew Bibles, they finish the book of Malachi by, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it's the second to last verse, and then you get the last verse about smiting the earth with a curse, and then they repeat the previous verse because they don't want to end a book on a bad note. And they do this several, in several books of the uh, Old Testament. They will actually repeat a previous verse at the end. These words were written by Malachi somewhere in the Second Temple period. So if you remember from our earlier class, which you probably don't, uh, Nehemiah and men like Zerubbabel had led a remnant of Jews from Babylon and other parts of the Persian Empire where they were dispersed back into the land of Israel. They go into Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild the city, and they build the Second Temple, men like Ezra. Uh, He was the priest at the time, I believe. And it's sometime during that period, there's about a 700-year period between when Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem and the coming of Jesus, that's what's known as the second temple period. Now, they started out very small with a a temple that was really nothing like the original temple that Solomon had built, but they were at least making an attempt to uh, create the Jewish state as best they could the way that they felt God wanted them to. Uh, a number of things happened during that time period. It was the period of the Maccabees. Alexander the Great was alive during that time. But these were really the last prophetic words that were written. Behold, I will send you, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the thought was, in Jewish, in the Jewish mind, that because Elijah did not die the first time, that he is going to come back. And the reason he's going to come back is he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now this is this is a good time for you to, to watch the time because there's more that I can talk about that. I'm just going to stop with that there. But they believe that life is going to come back and essentially restore things into what they should be so that Messiah can come. And here's okay, I will talk about this a little bit at least because it is just. Uh, I think it's important. We tend to think in Christianity that we are saved, and okay, wonderful, now we're saved, and I can't wait for God to come and just take us to heaven and get us out of here. That's kind of the idea. It's this uh, fire insurance policy for salvation. The Jews don't really think about it that way. It's not Messiah is going to come and make things right. It's we need to make things right so the Messiah can come. Do you see the difference in mindset from one to the other? The one is like, ah, who cares about the earth? Big deal. The other is, I need to not only be ready myself, but to prepare others around me or my community or whatever you want to call it down that line, pick up trash off the street, for example, because I'm trying to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ. There are people within our Christian circles that have this idea that the reason that Christ does not return, is because we have not prepared for him. Now, that's a different argument, I suppose, but I think that mindset is important. We're going to get to that again probably a little bit later. But they acted out this belief, this belief that Elijah is going to come and make things right, which is actually pretty important, right? You think about what it would be like for the wrongs that are in the world to be made right. I remember a story that I heard of, uh, I think it was Ravi Zacharias, years ago, said that he was on a flight back to the U.S. from somewhere, I don't remember where, and he was sitting next to a woman on a plane. And she began to tell him the work that she was involved in. She would rescue children that were caught up in human trafficking. And she referenced a story where children as young as 18 months were sold to men for their sexual gratification. And her response at the close of that conversation was, I don't know how you could see that and not believe in God. Because if God doesn't exist, then that's not wrong. Then that's okay. Big deal. Who cares? But if God exists, that means that someday, that not only means that this is wrong but that someday he's going to come and make this right. Which I think is correct. That's the kind of of mindset they had about Elijah coming. And they actually acted out this belief in their Passover celebrations every year. And we talked about this a long time ago at the beginning of Exodus class on the Passover Seder. The Passover Seder is simply the, the Seder is the format that they use for uh, going through their Passover supper. But during the course of the supper, they would drink four cups and each one of those cups represented a promise that God had made to the children of Israel in the beginning of Exodus before they were taken out of the land of Egypt and so the first cup they celebrated at the beginning of the meal they would fill the cup of wine on the table and celebrate at the beginning by drinking that cup celebrating the promise that God said I will take you out of Egypt second cup during the course of the meal God's promise that he would free them. The third cup, which is the one that Jesus took in John chapter 13 and gave to his disciples, that we pattern our communion services after, the promise was that God would take them out. Sorry, the promise was that God would redeem them and protect them. And the final cup they take after the meal is symbolic of the promise that God made to take them to be his people. And they have different ideas around each one of those promises, exactly what that means. But they have a fifth cup then as well that they fill after the drinking of the fourth cup. And that cup is called the cup of Elijah or Elijah's cup. What they do is they they celebrate the fact that God has freed them from bondage. And then they fill the fifth cup and it's part of the reason for that is found here in Malachi chapter three, chapter four. And they might take that cup and set it on the table as an invitation for Elijah to come and join their Passover celebration because Malachi said that someday Elijah is going to come back and begin to prepare the way for the Messiah. And they fill this cup in preparation for Elijah to come. And what they believe is that Elijah would come and he would take this cup, and it's called also called the cup of wrath. And Elijah will come, take this cup, and go to the nations who are living in sin and make them drink the cup of the wrath of God. That's the symbolism that they use to describe what's going on. And so at the end of the Passover celebration, they'll take Elijah's cup, and they'll go out to the door of the house and open it and call for Elijah to come. And as far as I know, he's yet to show up. And then they will take that cup and pour it out onto the ground and maybe say something like, next year in Jerusalem. Now, they're saying that in the hopes that next year they would be able to celebrate Passover physically in Jerusalem, but there's also this eternal hope that maybe by this time next year, Elijah, Messiah will have come and begun to restore things to what they should be. There's none of this God is taking us away into heaven and we don't have to worry about this anymore. It's The earth is a broken place that needs restoration. So for the Passover celebration... They're remembering the salvation and freedom from oppression and bondage. Here's the other thing. They saw this freedom as communal freedom, not individual freedom. See, in America, freedom generally means that I am free to do what I want. Or at least that's how it's interpreted today. For the Jew, what it means is that we are free from bondage. We as a people. In other words, I cannot rest if you are not free. So there's a greater look at society as a as a group as opposed to just me getting what I want as an individual. Israel had reason to believe that the Messiah and one like Elijah, here it says this that he will send one in the spirit and power of Elijah, uh, that one like Elijah was going to come and going to make things right. Now they equated making things right with the Messiah is setting up a political kingdom, bringing justice to the world, allowing Israel to flourish uh, there in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel like God had promised that they would. And the angel actually continues on from the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, continues on with his prophecy to Zacharias. This is what he says. He will cause many children of Israel to return to the Lord their God he will walk before him, speaking of Messiah, he will walk before him in the spirit of Elijah and in his power to restore the hearts of the fathers along with the children and the wayward into the understanding of the righteous to raise up a people prepared for the Lord. What kind of profit and revival would would you expect from a message like this? That doesn't sound really to me like a political message. That sounds like a religious one. Unless the idea of Messiah and freedom politically and nationally is so deeply entrenched in your mind. When they thought Messiah, they thought freedom like God freed us from Egypt. And all the way, for the last 700 years, well, really the last thousand, there's not been that many years where Israel was able to function the way that they felt God wanted them to this brings us to one of the differences in emphasis between Christianity and Judaism. I'll read something before you hear from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. He said this Judaism is not primarily about personal salvation, or the relationship between the individual and God in the inner recesses of the soul. It is about collective redemption, about what it is to create a society that is the opposite of Egypt, where the strong enslave the weak. Now, that's foreign to us in some ways now there are Christian groups and I think our Anabaptist heritage has (coughs) followed much more along with Judaism than Protestant Christianity today but we tend to think of salvation something like this Christian I am saved and I'm right with God individual redemption and most of the time it stops with that well as long as I'm right with God that's, that's what I need that's that's all that matters. Um, For the Jew, it might sound something like this. Salvation to them would be saying, we are the people of God. In other words, we as a community. Now it doesn't matter so much how you're doing today, but you're a part of this community and we are the people of God. You, You see the difference? And how that difference might affect how you live your life from day to day. It's not an individual thing, it's an us thing. And for the Jew, um, it was impossible to separate being God's people from living in the place that God had promised to them. In other words, we cannot fully live out the people that God has created us to be unless we can live in the place that God designed for us and gave it to us. Worship was to be centered around the temple. It also meant that justice and not oppression was to be the rule of the day. They believed and collective salvation more than individual. And I've seen, even today, I see some evidences of that being played out and what I hear. Let's look at the message of John. This is coming from Luke chapter 3. I'm not going to take the time to read all of those verses. But it says, The word of God came to John in the wilderness. This was the gist of what he had said. There's a number of verses that kind of go through uh, explaining his interactions with various people. This is what John said. Repent of your sins. Individual. Repent of your sins. Then he says things like this Give to the poor, treat each other fairly, don't cheat, don't steal. He says, soldiers, don't oppress people, be gracious, be honest, and be satisfied with your wages. Those are community things. What John is doing is he's addressing the individual problem that exists in each one of us and he's addressing the problems of the community for example there was a tax collector that Jesus would later convert some years after this not too long after this really by the name of Zacchaeus who lived in Jericho and who probably went to hear John speak and those are the kind of things that John was preaching against the fact that society in Israel was not what it was supposed to be. was not what God had called it to be. This is a message to community and the individuals, and we read that John was getting results. Matthew 4 tells us that Jerusalem and all Judea went out to hear John speak and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins and repenting. Now, I'm sure there was exceptions to that. We read about his encounters with people. But John was getting things done. This was the result. Luke 3. When the people were hoping and thinking in their hearts saying, perhaps John is the Messiah. John responded and said to all of them, "Yes, I am immersing you in water, but one will surely come who is mightier than I am, whose sandal strap I am unworthy to unloose to loosen. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand to sift his threshing floor. He will gather his grain into his storehouse." but he will burn the chaff in the fire that will not be extinguished. And with many other words like this, he rebuked and proclaimed good news to the people. John was called by Jesus the greatest prophet since the time of Moses. And if you look at his message, you can understand why. This was a man who was a prophet's prophet. Look at what he says. He says things like being baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. That doesn't sound like a pleasant message. He says he's going to separate the evil from the good. And he calls the Pharisees and the religious establishment, you know, things like snakes. Which had to be deeply satisfying for him to do that. John spoke the truth to the king without fear. He called the people to repentance. His pleasure in life was working for God. Here's the other thing about John. Zacharias is told by the angel Gabriel that the child would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Now, I don't know what that was like. Did did Mary have, did Elizabeth have, you know, speaking in tongues happening? Uh, Yeah. Various things like that. But can you imagine this little child growing up with his elderly Levite parents and them telling him from the moment he was born, John... Your role in life is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And I don't know how that affected their child training and what they exposed him to as he was growing up. But he was a man who gave everything. He was a man who got results. He was a man preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. And he did that with everything that he had in him. And he was a doer, and he was a worker, and he got things done until he didn't anymore. But things changed for him. So we're going to pick that up again later, but I'm I'm going to read a couple of quotes for you. They were both made by Jewish thinkers. I don't think they're ideas that are necessarily unique to Judaism, because I think we find these ideas in our culture as well, and they're not wrong. I think they're accurate, but I think we need to understand them correctly. First one was a statement that was made by Dennis Prager earlier this year. <clears throat> he said this, I am far more interested in what God wants from me than what I can get from God. In other words, God is not my Santa Claus. God has me here, I'm here for a reason, and I'd like to know what that purpose is so I can do what he wants me to do. Next one is a quote, or a uh, something that was written by Jonathan Sachs, who is no longer with us. But he was... Uh, When he was a young man, he was, uh, he's from Britain, and he was on a bit of a tour in the (coughs) United States. He was currently at rolling college at, uh, I think it was Cambridge, yeah, at Cambridge in England. And he came to the United States, and there was a very influential rabbi living in New York at the time. He was known simply as the Rebbe, and um, there are some that have thought over the past several decades that he might have been the Messiah. But anyway, so, So um, Jonathan Sachs manages to get a few hours with this man that was called the Rebbe, and he's describing their conversation. And uh, he goes to say, he writes this. More surprising still was what happened halfway into our conversation. Having patiently answered my questions, he performed a role reversal and started asking questions of his own. How many Jewish students were there at Cambridge University? How many of them were engaged in in Jewish life? How many came to synagogue and when he heard the answers, at the time, only about 10% of the Jewish students were in any way actively engaged with Jewish life. He asked me what I was personally doing about this. This was not what I was expecting. I had not the slightest intention of taking on any leadership role. I began a tortuous statement explaining why this had nothing to do with me. In the situation in which I find myself, I began, the rabbi let the sentence go no further. You do not find yourself in a situation, he said. You put yourself in one. And if you, if you put yourself in one situation, you can put yourself in another. Quite soon it became clear what he was doing. He was challenging me to act. Something was happening that I did not like. And he was not satisfied with the excuse, well, that's just where I find myself right now. Now, both of those statements are about personal responsibility, aren't they? Dennis Prager said what Jonathan Sachs writes, and it sounds a lot like something a man like John the Baptist would say. Take responsibility, get your act together. Choose what you can choose. And those are all correct statements, but let's say we take them too far the opposite direction. Take responsibility too far and it becomes an unbearable burden. Take choice or control away And we collapse. Because we actually don't get to choose everything, do we? And John the Baptist knew what that was like. Luke 7, verses 19 and 20. This is when John was in prison. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were coming to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another. This was a man asking this question that has been filled with the Holy Spirit his entire life long. He saw revival. He stood alone against injustice. He is currently in prison because he won't stop telling the king that he's living in sin. He baptized Jesus and saw the anointing of God on his life. And this statement is immediately following the raising of the dead widow's son at the city of Nain, which is a story we're going to get to sometime later, hopefully, uh, in class. How could John ask a question like that? You have all these encounters with the Messiah. You know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the Son of God. And within a year, two years, we don't know exactly how long John was in prison, he's sending to Jesus and asking, are you really who you say you are? Do you ever have questions that scare you? You know what we usually do with those questions? Get out of here. Like, shove them away, you know? Because we don't want to think about that. John actually asked the question. He asked what well, many people would be too afraid to look themselves to consider Human beings like to think in categories. I talked about this a little bit at Camp Week a couple of months ago. But we like to think in categories because it brings order to our chaos and it helps us create assumptions and expectations about what's going to happen. and uh, we sort of feel a sense of control over the unknown when we categorize things. But our questions come when God works outside the categories that we thought we had for him. In other words, we say, well... God always does this and this and this and if this happens if I do this right that this is what's going to happen and then suddenly it doesn't work out how we try to figure out what happened and we have questions like that John the Baptist is asking here I'll jump ahead to another chapter to another story in the book of John the story of Lazarus I know you are all probably familiar with this, but I'm going to read a few verses here just to set this story up. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So I'm sure you all are familiar with this story. These people were good friends of Jesus. Lazarus is sick. They send someone to tell Jesus what's going on, and then Jesus waited two days before heading to the town of Bethany. And when he arrives there, we find out that it doesn't matter, because by the time he got there, Lazarus was already dead for four days. So had Jesus come right away, he would have still been 48 hours too late. Look at what they had to say when Jesus finally showed up. So Jesus has this interaction with his disciples about what's going on and he has a specific encounter with Martha and Mary and that the people that were observing what was going on and all of them basically had the same thing to say. Martha came to Jesus and said this Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died. Mary comes and meets Jesus at the tomb and says Essentially the same thing. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And then it says that the people, and then interspersed in that, so Mary says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And They go to the tomb, and Jesus, seeing what was going on, begins to weep. And the people's response was, wow, he really loved him. But then on the back side of that verse, it says what some of the people said. They said, he, he opened the blind man's eyes. Couldn't he have kept this one from dying? And in the books that are going to be written about our lives, somewhere in the verses, the readers are going to come along and find verses like this one here. You could have, so why didn't you? Because we have those questions about God. You could have, so why didn't you? How does Jesus respond to that? How did Jesus respond? He did not respond with the answers. He did respond. He was empathetic. And he wept. He offered Martha hope. And he said, find the resurrection of the life. And then he offered them an invitation to trust him. And said, do you believe? Now, Jesus knew what he was going to do. And we know what Jesus was doing they didn't not at that time up to the point that when Jesus told them to roll away the stone they were like "Uh, I don't think you want to do that because even though they wanted to believe they didn't know if they could but Jesus offers them an, an invitation to trust and he essentially asks them this question do you believe that I can bring glory from your pain Back to John the Baptist in his prison cell. Did he really question who Jesus was? Or was this John the Baptist throwing out an obvious, crazy question because he wants some answers for what's happening to him and he can't figure out how to get Jesus' attention? I don't know exactly. But that would help, wouldn't it? Imagine if you're John the Baptist sitting in prison. You've given your entire life to prepare the way for the Messiah. And now, you are in prison. And his ministry is flourishing. And as far as I know, he hasn't even come to visit yet. And this is not what you expected. Reasons would help. Reasons would bring control. Reasons would make it worth it. John 2 wanted answers. And he died without them. He was a mover and a shaker. He could face the anger of Herod. He could shout down the Pharisees. And in the end, he was brought down by futility and loneliness. Sometimes God strips us of our crutches and coping mechanisms so that we can experience his true healing and really know that he is there. God doesn't give us answers for our pain, but He calls us to trust, sometimes one painful and dark day at a time. I want to close by with reading something from Romans chapter eight. So in Romans eight, Paul talks about being saved by hope. And he gives us this verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, to them who are the called according to his purpose. That sounds nice by itself. Um, we like to pull this verse out when bad things happen that we don't understand and you know somehow actually think that it will actually help the person that we you know, naively quoted to and I don't say that to take away from the power of what Paul is saying here but we miss what happened before this verse in verse 26 Paul says this likewise the spirit also helps our infirmities We know not what we should pray for as we ought. What Paul is saying is that sometimes things are so bad that we don't even have words for them anymore. And we don't even know how to pray about them anymore. And Paul says, in that moment, it's not the answers. But Paul calls his audience to believe that above all else, God has the ability to work this situation out for good? That's not an answer, is it? That's a call of faith. And by definition, faith is believing in something that is not seen. And so if you see it, you don't need any faith, do you? And yet Paul talks about hope. In times when there is nothing else left, hope in the one that we can actually trust. Hope in the one that sometimes we don't know that he was with us until we look back later and saw it. But if all you need is answers, you're probably not going to get satisfactory ones. But you can never take away his presence. I'll close with that. I have a January DT meeting in here in a few minutes, otherwise.